Mongolia had a very complex history, and most people know only one thing: is Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire. Once I left Mongolia and I was among other cultures, I was often challenged, and I was often asked about, like. Uh, what is Mongolia and what is Mongolian identity? I do understand that you have a very complex relationship with China. We kind of try to be very distant from uh, any kind of Chinese influence because that was how our last 100 years of cultural shaping was made. How do people in modern-day Mongolia uh, see the Russian Federation? We are, and I am also worried but um, people are not feeling safe to express their opinion against these kind of situations. Good day, Donna. Good day, Paulius. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Uh, thank you for spending some time uh, to join the podcast and to enlighten us about Mongolia, its history, its language, and of course, your research, about which we are going to talk quite soon. Um, it's my pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much. So for people that don't know who Donna is, maybe maybe let's start by saying your full name. Yes. So um, actually, in Mongolia, we only use our uh, first name. So uh, my name is Darch Pagam, but uh, my full name is Darch Pagam Batsehan. And... Um, my nickname is Donna. Everyone calls me Donna, so feel free to call any of them, like Donna or Dorchpagam, if you can. So, Dorchpagam. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good, very good. And uh, it's it's interesting that you only use your first name in Mongolia. Yeah. Is there a reason behind that? Um, I'm not sure. It's only like we only use our uh, last name when we are filling any kind of like. Uh, forms or applications and otherwise we only go with our first names mostly yeah. cool cool so for people that might not know uh, donna is a cultural anthropologist who, who has done some research regarding the national identity of mongolia when she was uh, interviewing immigrants so she was curious to know what it means for a different kind of people to be mongolian in the current day of age. So please tell me a little bit about this research, Donna. How did you come up with this idea? And uh, how did it go? What, was it easy to do such a project? And what, what were some of your results? Okay, so um, I studied cultural anthropology in uh, Jatush Lorand University in Budapest, in Hungary. So um, we had to uh, choose our thesis topic. So as an anthropologist, it's common that we choose some kind of uh, remote uh, community or tribe or some other uh, culture, and we get to know about them. We become one of them. But um, actually, I decided to study my own culture and own identity, Mongolian national identity and cultural identity, because... Um, once I left Mongolia and I was among other cultures and I was exposed to other cultures, I was often challenged and I was often asked about, like, uh, what is Mongolia and what is Mongolian identity? And I had to explain my own identity to other people. But uh, that is when I realized that I actually know very little about my own culture and uh, identity because uh, when we are in our own um country and we are in among the same people and same culture we actually take everything for granted we don't uh, scrutinize about uh, all the meaning or symbolic meanings history all the context we don't know we don't know nothing about it actually so I realized I actually should academically study my culture and I decided to interview with the Mongolians who are living in Hungary and I decided to to uh, research how Mongolians living in Hungary are uh, performing or expressing their own uh, Mongolian identity while living in Hungary. So um, actually, in uh, anthropological uh, academic world, it's um, quite uh, complicated and tricky to study our own culture because there is a problem that is called home blindedness because once we are trying to study objectively our own culture 
it's actually very hard to see and have new findings about ourselves because everything seems quite very obvious and very um, taken for granted. So it's kind of difficult to have the novelty of learning new cultures. So um, for me, sometimes it was quite um, interesting, I would say, uh, rather than complicated. For example, I would often ask like from other Mongolians, like, what is Mongolian identity? How do you feel about being Mongolia here? Blah, blah, blah. And people would say, why are you asking this? This question seems quite stupid because you are already, already Mongolian and you know what is our Mongolian identity, etc. So there was this kind of uh, interesting experience. And about the result, um, it seems also very obvious for Mongolians, but um, Mongolian identity is all about um, keeping our authentic root in, as the nomads and keeping our relationship back to the, uh, our motherland, etc. And we express our cultural identity through keep doing our national celebrations, keep um, performing our national holidays and everything. So that's what makes us Mongolians uh, in Hungary, it means like in other countries. So actually, once we, uh, I think it's same for every uh, nationals that uh, once we leave our own country, we become more of our own country. Uh, and it was like we, we became more Mongolians once we left Mongolia because we had to show other people that we are Mongolian and we needed to dress more like traditional uh, costumes, etc. So I actually uh, decided to um, pursue the study more in my uh, doctor's study uh, that is going to study soon in September. The news is I'm going back to Hungary and continue my research. And I think it would be also interesting to uh, research about second generation Mongolians who are living abroad. And I actually, after I came back to Mongolia, I realized that there is actually not enough research on Mongolian diaspora who are living abroad and um, second generation Mongolians and about their identity. So in the future, I will be researching more on that. Oh, that's very interesting. And uh, it's interesting that there's uh, quite a large community of Mongolians in Hungary, if I understand also that correctly. So... How come are there so many Mongolians in Hungary and maybe there are other places where you can find even more Mongolians? Yes. Um, so in in terms of numbers, uh, there are about roughly 5,000 Mongolians in Hungary. So um, a few of them were uh, immigrated uh, to Hungary back in the, in the 90s uh, to um, study, also to work, and also to immigrate. And most of them um, arrived in Hungary because of uh, the education, because there is a Hungarian government scholarship, and a lot of Mongolians uh, go and study in Hungary because of that scholarship. And every year, it uh, the scholarship recruits 200 students, so every year it adds up the population living there. Mm -hmm. So other Mongolian diaspora community, the biggest Mongolian community is in actually South Korea. There are about um, 50,000 Mongolians are working there. Oh. Yes, a lot. And um, we are very close to also very fond of Korean culture and every teenagers are into K-pop, etc. <laughs> and the next is in the US, I think a lot. I think also... 30-something 30, 30 thousand, thousand Mongolians are living in the U.S. And it's interesting because from what I have researched, Mongolia is uh, one of the most sparse populated countries in the world. So from what I know, you have around 3.3 million people mm -hmm. living in Mongolia. So that's about two people per square kilometer. Mm -hmm. So that kind of tells you about the size of Mongolia. It's a, it's a huge place, uh, but most of the people are concentrated in the capital city, mm -hmm. uh, which I hope I will pronounce correctly, Ulaanbaatar. Ulaanbaatar, mm -hmm. yes. Okay. <laughs> so are most people located in Ulaanbaatar? 
And uh, where do other people live? Um, are there still nomadic communities? Because I think that mo some people, especially in rural areas, still uh, live the nomad life. Uh, but uh, the, the city dwellers, of course, they have changed. Mm -hmm. So when did this change from, let's say, nomadic communities to mm -hmm. city dwellers began? Mm -hmm. um, so one of the paradox in Mongolia is that, as you just said, we have very uh, vast land, but uh, there is very uh, few population and more than half of the population, which is like uh, 1.7 million people are concentrated in the capital city. And capital city of Lambatar is a very populated, very urban place uh, in contrast to the nomad lifestyle. And the remaining people are uh, living in the countryside as a nomad, herding their animals. And um, it's, uh, there is this kind of duality and there's a lot of complexities with this also. And um, this urban lifestyle it, um, uh, started, uh, let me think, around uh, 1920s, um, uh, the development of the uh, capital city started. Um, and uh, since then, people started moving more, immigrating more and more into the capital city and it expanded. Uh, actually, in the first, uh, the um, the base basic foundation of the Ulaanbaatar city was just uh, um, the organized gear districts with the gear uh, tents, but uh, uh, obviously it developed into more um, buildings, and now it's there are a lot of skyscrapers, and um, there are a lot of mixed uh, cultural. Um, layers in this city it's i think it's quite um, chaotic but also very interesting city for me Ulaanbaatar is so what i'm passionate about people to know about mongolia is that people often know about mongolia that about mongolia that we have this vast land and people living as a nomad in the countryside but they are not very familiar with the urban life and um, urban culture of Mongolia. So we have both this uh, dual culture. That is true. And Mongolia, from my research, had a very complex history. And most people know only one thing is Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire. But uh, they, many people are clueless of what happened after that because it got... when. Genghis died and uh, the empire dissolved into separate khanates. There was the Golden Horde, the, there were other khanates. And uh, yeah, so especially the Golden Horde uh, is what we learn in Lithuania uh, in our student books in history mm -hmm. because the great duchy of Lithuania also had contact with the Mongols of the Golden Horde. It played a big role in the development of uh, Moscow Empire as well. Now, nobody is known as Russia Federation. And uh, yeah, it's a very complex history, but it gets even more intense uh, when Qing Dynasty began and there was a lot of conflicts with the Qing. There was also the Soviet times. There was the independence times uh, with the Bakht Khanate. So there was so much change happening that led to where Mongolia is today. And uh, when you study, let's say, at school, your Mongolian history, uh, what are the periods that you focus the most or you remember most from your own education when you learned about Mongolia? I myself, I would uh, identify as the worst articulator uh, of Mongolian history, <laughs> but to just give the general picture of Mongolian history, what happened after the uh, Mongol Empire and Chinggis Khan rule. So uh, after uh, the Mongol Empire um, was dissolved into these chiefdoms and uh, um, there was the era of the Golden Horde and around um, 16th century, Mongolia was uh, ruled by, under the Manchu, Manchu dynasty, dynasty right? So uh, Mongolia was uh, ruled by Manchus mm -hmm. for over 300 years. So everything... Um, we were um, Manchus were ruling Mongolians for 300 years, and after that, with the help of 
Soviets, uh, we got independent. We got our independence from the Manchu rulers, and right after uh, getting our independence, we actually went autonomous from the Soviet uh, Union. And for uh, 70 years, there was a Soviet rules, Soviet regime. We were like propagated with the socialist ideas. And after that 70 years, the 1990s came and we had the democratic revolution. And since 1992, exactly, uh, now we are here um, having our own democratic history and trying to keep up with the globalization and um, all these modern um, developments. It seems that it's a little bit tough because you're quite landlocked uh, between two countries. So from what I saw on the map, there are only two countries that are Mongolia's neighbors. So up north, you have uh, the Russian Federation and down south, there's uh, the People's Republic of China. So there's a small land bridge, like 26 miles to the, to the west, uh, that you almost have a border with Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I think it's still uh, the land of area is still China, mm -hmm. so to say. So, so I'm pretty sure that uh, you you have experienced quite a lot of difficulties in terms of developments because you have these two neighbors mm -hmm. uh, and also you don't have access to the sea. So, so how much is uh, modern day Mongolia dependent on on their neighbors on on the Russian Federation and uh, on on People's Republic of China. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, geographically, uh, Mongolia is in quite complicated location. Like in every international news, uh, um, reporters uh, define Mongolia as sandwiched between Russia and China, this, between these two big economies. And um, today, um, Mongolia is heavily, materially heavily uh, dependent from uh, China, we import, um, I think, maybe around 90% uh, of the goods from China. And um, But on the other hand, culturally, we are more uh, influenced and there are a lot of Russian legacy in Mongolian culture. So if you um, visit Mongolia and uh, go around the city, Mongolia is like... Um, the old buildings and the some streets are very much similar to old Soviet districts and old Soviet streets. So um, it's kind of like uh, infused with the Russian old Soviet culture. And but we are culturally very uh, infused with a lot of different things. We kind of try to be very distant from uh, any kind of Chinese um, uh, influence because that was how our last um, 100 years of um, cultural shaping was made with the Soviet propaganda because during that Soviet rule um, everything was taught that China was China was bad influence and there was this um, uh, national identity uh, program that uh, thought that we need to be uh, pure in terms of our blood and everything uh, bad and everything contaminating came from China. So we still have those kind of um, mindset that we think we try to be kind of culturally separate from China. But actually, uh, if you look back into China, there we back look into the history, there's a lot of like intermingling with the Chinese culture and everything all together. So um, we are culturally and um, with our mindset, we are kind of more lean into the Western culture. But however, in materially, in the material world, we use a lot of things from China uh, that are made in China. Probably that's also one of the reasons why in the early 20th century, you have adopted the Cyrillic scripts. So many people might not know, but uh, in Mongolia, you had your own traditional scripts, uh, which is uh, actually written from top to bottom mm -hmm. and from left to right. Mm -hmm. So it's mainly going uh, something resembling uh, if some people have seen uh, Chinese writing with the Chinese hieroglyphs. Uh, 
it's it's uh, not a hieroglyphs it's an alphabet yeah. mongolian alphabet but it's also written top to bottom which, which looks very pretty it's a, it's a very beautiful script and uh, from what i know you have moved away from the script to the cyrillic probably during the soviet times mm -hmm. when mongolia became a communist country uh, but i know that there are still some efforts to revive the old scripts and I think Mongolian government has put in enough efforts to revive it until 2025, if I'm correct. So there are efforts made to go back from Kyrillic to the traditional Mongol scripts. Uh, how do people see this, that uh, the script had changed, they had to adapt to the new script, and now when they adapt it, they have to go back to the old one? Yes, so um, when our uh, language was adapted into Cyrillic alphabet, it was just phonetically adapted into the alphabet, but the whole language system and everything is in the traditional script. So um, as I read somewhere else uh, from the article written by a uh, linguist, um, we need to actually uh, keep our traditional script because in order to develop our language, to adapt new words, uh, uh, because of the cultural uh, evolution, etc., we need our old system of the language, but with our current Cyrillic language that are just phonetically adapted, we cannot, uh, for example, create new words, etc. So that is kind of necessary. And um, you're right that government is trying to revive the use of uh, our traditional uh, script, traditional uh, language, but. I don't see any kind of real um, implementation or any kind of uh, active um, active steps that are trying to reinforce that because it's only uh, written in some kind of resolution and law, but um, I don't see any kind of active steps that are trying to reach that goal. But uh, in terms of people's perception, people are quite... Um, agreeing and uh, um, kind of uh, supporting this goal and but it will take I think it will take quite some time to make everyone learn relearn the, our own traditional uh, language and use it um, using our daily life but I hope it will it will work because that is our also essential part of our cultural identity and actually, sometimes I like to do some kind of copying practice in traditional script because if I don't uh, practice it, I sometimes just forget it. I actually hardly read uh, texts in traditional script, but I can't actually write it um, if I want to just write any kind of text on my own. I have, still have to practice and relearn the uh, grammar. I know that uh, during the transition from Qing rule, because you have mentioned the Manchus and many people don't know who were the Manchus, but basically Manchus started the Qing dynasty in China. So they, they were the successors of the previous uh, generation, the previous dynasty, and they were the ones that later first conquered Inner Mongolia and then uh, also, I think, uh, added the Outer Mongolia to the Qing Empire. And uh, I do understand that you have a very complex relationship with China, just like as mm -hmm. Lithuanians have mm -hmm. a complex relationship with the Russian Federation, because, uh, because our country was also added to the Russian Empire in 1795. Mm -hmm. So it was actually divided into three parts. The Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth, it was a huge commonwealth in europe in central europe and part of it went to austria another part to prussia and another part to the russian empire so we also lived under the russian empire for around 200 years mm -hmm. so for this reason we have a very complicated and then there was the soviet era so we didn't want to become a soviet regime uh, we also declared independence in the middle 20th century but then we were taken by the Soviets, then by the Nazis, then again by the Soviets. And only in 1990, just like Mongolia, we declared permanent independence that we have until now. Mm -hmm. So we saw the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union as oppressors. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we still see that until this day. Uh, but you saw it as 
liberators mm -hmm. because they helped you yeah. to get rid of the Chinese rule. Mm -hmm. But uh, probably in this day and age, if the country wants to be its own place culturally, uh, you probably people would like to also distance themselves a little bit more from the Russian influence mm -hmm. because uh, you have the Kyrillic alphabet, mm -hmm. which is... Well, it's a Mongolic language, you know, it's it's odd <laughs> to have the Kyrillic yes. there. Uh, mm -hmm. But the Kazakh people have a very similar similar uh, situation, just like many other post-Soviet uh, countries. Mm -hmm. So so I, I just wondered, uh, how do people in modern-day Mongolia uh, see uh, the Russian Federation? So what you just actually said about... Um... Mongolian relationship with the Russian Federation was very accurate. So um, people think, Mongolians think as uh, Russians as our liberator from Chinese uh, rule and Chinese oppression. And, um, but actually uh, there was also uh, Russian oppression, but it was displayed as a liberation. Mm. And um, a lot of people see that now as uh, it was not a liberation actually, but there, uh, this kind of old mindset of, uh, for example, my parents still see Russians as our brothers, and very, very, they very fond of Russian culture because they studied in Irkutsk and Leningrad, etc. They have, um, they learned la uh, Russian language when they were uh, students. So there are this part of uh, generations that are still very feel very close and very. Um, patronized by Russians, but also there are, of course, there are people who are uh, seeing what the current affairs of Russian politics and what's happening in the world. So they um, they try to make people see that um, um, Russians are not very innocent as they seem to for Mongolians. So um, there are, of course, there are uh, conflicts. And especially on Twitter, actually, there are a lot of people like fighting and uh, having quarrels on Twitter about like they hate some of them hate Russians and some of them like, no, we love Russians. And because Russians gave us all those, I don't know, buildings and factories, etc. So it is like this. Yeah, that's the interesting part. That's the interesting part because I know that a lot of uh, current-day Mongolian industrial words actually got appropriated from the Russian language, uh, just as uh, some uh, words got appropriated from Ch Chinese language uh, with agriculture and farming. And uh, it depended probably on the day and age. But, uh, but, but yeah, the Russian relationship with uh, Asia and Europe is always complicated because... Uh, it's such a large country and it became large, well, by conquering yeah. lands. So most of uh, Asian part of China uh, didn't just say like, hey, we want to become part of the Russian Empire. <laughs> it, it was not like that. And uh, the mentality is probably similar to this day and age. But uh, moving from that back to Mongolia, uh, I know that during the Soviet uh, times, the religious aspect of the country changed dramatically. Could you talk a little bit about the traditional religions of uh, of Mongolia and what happened during the Soviet times? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, Mongolian local uh, religious belief is um, shamanism, yes, that's true, and also the worship of the sky. So, why the sky is that Mongolian, as a nomadic a nomadic herders, uh, we live in harmony with the nature and we observe, Mongolians observe the nature and predict the climate. Um, so we are very much in worship with the nature and especially the sky because uh, Mongolians believe that the upper, higher power, which is up in the sky, and we believe that our ancestors uh, ascend, when they die, they ascend up to the sky and they are um, protecting, looking down on us from the sky and helping us from the sky. So we worship the sky and uh, say prayers and ask help from the sky and we libate uh, the milk up to the sky. And so every, those kind of um, 
daily customs and um, rituals are very much, uh, very much uh, embedded with this religious belief. And also there is shamanism. Um, there are shamans who communicate with the ancestral spirits and ancestral spirits use their body to communicate with the people in people. Uh, who are worshipping them, asking them questions, um, asking for guidance. So we still practice that. There are a lot of shamans here today. So those were the um, authentic religions and uh, spiritual beliefs um, during the Genghis Khan and also before that. And um, during the 16th century, there was um, the Buddhism came to Mongolia from Tibet and it stayed... Uh, and also um, became very much embedded in our daily life and culture and traditions um, until the rule of Russian uh, Soviet regime. And um, when the Russian uh, Soviet regime uh, took over Mongolia, they repressed um, especially the religion. And what they... Um, made us believe was uh, our own nomadic culture and um, religion and everything was barbaric and not cultured. So they started the uh, cultural revolution, which was taught that the religion was not good and all of our um, traditional culture was um, repressed. Even the Genghis Khan was, Genghis Khan's name was prohibited to say out loud, etc. So um that's and during that time um most of the intellectuals were the monks and high level uh lamas in the buddhist monks but uh, buddhist temples but during the soviet regime all those uh, in, uh, religious intellectuals were persecuted and um, um they were killed and so we lost a lot of uh historical um religious cultural um facts uh, artifacts uh, temples and also people to the russian uh, oppression and after that um after losing all those uh, traditional uh, identity uh, we actually had to define our identity national identity again that's when we started reviving all the traditional um rituals, religious celebrations, everything since the 1990s. And even though during those uh, Soviet regime, we were oppressed uh, and all the spiritual beliefs were uh, prohibited, uh, today we actually still have um, a lot of Buddhist um, rituals and uh, symbolical customs that are infused in our daily life. And we still use the Buddhist astrological um, horoscope and the system of the 12 year of the animals. And the very common example is that we use the uh, Buddhist horoscope and on those, that horoscope there are certain days that we cannot have our hair cut or something like that. So we also look at that um, mm. horoscope, but um, it's also up to people uh i actually don't mind about that horoscope i <laughs> i don't care which day i get my haircut but many people use that wow that's very interesting and uh, one one other question that i was meaning to ask you actually was about astrology because uh, knowing that it's uh, that mongolia is such a place that is very vast in terms of the meadowlands and uh, probably you feel a lot of space everywhere mm -hmm. but to navigate yourself it should be also quite difficult so uh, had astrology had an important part in mongolian history and is it still a thing that is practiced today in some kind of ways is it important for mongolian culture um I actually don't know the answer for this, but uh, just for the part of your question about navigating yourself in the vast land, it's not actually um, guided by the astrology. It's uh, just a pure uh, nomadic knowledge of the landscape and uh, knowing how to navigate, where to uh, cross the land, etc. And 
also observing the nature, knowing deep knowledge of the landscape and traveling uh, with the horses, etc. So it's quite practical knowledge, I would say, rather than the astrological belief or astrological um, guidance. I see. And uh, for people that have ever looked into the map of uh, Central Asia, uh, they might have seen a peculiar thing that there's Mongolia as a country and there's China below. But if you look a little bit closer, you see that in the north of China, there's a region called Inner Mongolia, which is now currently an autonomous region. But it's an autonomous region technically, but sort of is still part of China. Uh, so it's a, it's a very interesting location. And I was just interested about how do people from Mongolia see Inner Mongolia? Because I know that historically, when there was the civil war in China and uh, when the nationals were fighting the communists, Inner Mongolia used the opportunity to seize independence and they asked to become also appropriate back to Mongolia, the outer Mongolia. But because there was a pact with Stalin, uh, that could not be done because uh, the the land area should be, as it was written in the documents, they should preserve the status quo of Mongolia, meaning not just the independence, but also the borders. So even though, from my understanding, the Mongolian people and inner Mongolian people were wanted to become one part of the same country, uh, but it was prohibited by treaties and international law, so to say, of the time. But how do people nowadays see Inner Mongolia? And how do Inner Mongolians see the Mongolia that is outside of the Chinese influence? Uh, is there a lot of uh, connections happening with the people? Do, do they travel one to another? Do they, are their families living, let's say, partly in Inner Mongolia, partly in Outer Mongolia? Or has it more more of a time just distanced from each other and now it's kind of became like like a distant countries. Not a South and let's say North Korea, but uh, maybe the border got more thick, so to say. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, as we discussed about the history of Mongolia, um, as you said, uh, yes, we wanted to be as uh, one united Mongols with the outer Mongolia and inner Mongolia, but it, that didn't happen because of the political complexities of that time and that the treaties of um, the countries. And they remained, inner Mongolia remained the uh, autonomous region of China. Actually, inner Mongolia is even bigger than the independent Mongolia, and it has, I think, around 10 million people, and it's quite bigger. Culturally, um, they are even more Mongolian than after Mongolia because they preserved their, they actually used the Mongolian traditional script as a uh, official language. But as, uh, as any autonomous region would face, they also facing the cultural uh, genocide from China because um, a couple of years ago, China um, prohibited uh, learning uh, Mongolian traditional language in the school, so they are not, uh, the children are not being taught with the Mongolian language, etc. So they fa they are facing all these kind of um, difficult problems and issues as a minority in a big country. And um, either Mongolians actually think as outer Mongolia, Outer Mongolia is a mecca for Inner Mongolians because we are independent and we uh, are our own country. Uh, so as for Inner Mongolians, it's kind of their um, big dream or goal to settle in, in uh, after Mongolia. So there are a lot of Inner Mongolian students uh, here and studying. They're trying to... Um, they just uh, want to be here and living as uh, Mongolians together. And a lot of uh, Mongolians also travel to Inner Mongolia and the wall border is not as thick, I would say. We are quite close to each other. 
but of course, uh, culturally, there uh, has been quite much of assimilation in uh, within with the Chinese culture, the language and culture and everything. But they still have the traditional, a lot of traditional custom culture, and everything is quite celebrated and also preserved in Inner Mongolia too. Yeah, I heard that uh, sometime in the 18th century, a lot of Han people were migrating yeah. to the land of Inner Mongolia, and uh, and uh, there was a lot of migration. They started growing uh, rice, which was not custom to Inner Mongolia. And there were a lot of conflicts between the Hans and uh, the, the Mongolian people living there. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, it was very tough during the Cultural mm -hmm. Revolution because people who might not know um, Chinese history, mm -hmm. at least the communist Chinese history of the People's Republic of China during 1966 and 1976, uh, there was the Cultural Revolution where a lot of people got prosecuted and killed and it was horrendous. Mm -hmm. And I know that in Inner Mongolia also suffered losses and uh, and yeah, it was it was a very tough time. Mm -hmm. But but now Inner Mongolia, I guess uh, it's a, a safe place to live. Uh, what I saw that the GDP is uh, quite high as well, mm -hmm. but maybe that also makes them even more dependent on China yeah. be, because of the rising economy mm -hmm. so you know you cannot just have uh, a rising economy and then say well but we don't want to be uh, any way related to you mm -hmm. because uh, it's it's very hard to distance yourself so as i saw mongolia has uh, a smaller gdp so so it's the development is maybe going slower in some ways but at least you have your own independence so mm -hmm. So, so that's a, that's a good. Maybe, maybe it's tougher on the economic development side, but, uh, but yeah, you you have your own freedom, which is yes. as a Lithuanian, I can empathize mm -hmm. and understand how important it is. Just to add on the Inner Mongolian context, there is a, a very established uh, Inner Mongolian anthropologist, Oratim uh, Botlak, and he wrote about the relationship of this. Mongolia and Inner Mongolian, and also the um, uh, Chinese uh, policy on Inner Mongolia and how it's affecting the relationship between Mongolia and Inner Mongolia. And that there are two books, and that is very informative and very interesting to understand the relationship between us. And as he wrote, um, Mongolians, uh, um, it's very in, uh, important for Mongolians to be authentic, authentic Mongolian. And uh, Mongolians see Inner Mongolians as hybrid and quite assimilated into Chinese culture. That's why um, Mongolians see Inner Mongolians as not as authentic Mongolians. So if uh, sociologically and, and anthropologically, if you want to understand the uh, nuances of the relationship, it um, uh, Oratim Bodak uh, wrote a very interesting book on that, just uh, for your information. And for the people who are interested in Mongolian history and uh, want to understand uh, the current complexities of Mongolia, I will also link uh, these books in the description of, uh, of the podcast so they can uh, go ahead and read up if they so wish. Uh, but uh, moving back to Donna. Uh, I know that you have a podcast yourself, which is called Modern Mongolia. Uh, so could you please tell a little bit about your podcast? Uh, what is its aim? Uh, how did it develop? And what do you talk about there? Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, as you said, every uh, other countries and other people Mon know Mongolia only uh, through Chinggis Khan or only they only have one-sided representation of Mongolia so uh, while I was studying in Hungary I heard a lot of people that um, that they are very much uh, very uh, fascinated with Mongolia but actually they know very little of Mongolia they only heard about like uh, there we are nomads and we are uh, descendants of Genghis Khan and that's it and I thought I actually 
um, as a <laughs> Mongolian, I need to represent our culture in a candid way, not to just not to paint a one-sided stereotypical image. I wanted to talk about like a real reality of Mongolia, and I had the first the idea of talking to the expats and how were their imagination of Mongolia were. Uh, conflicting with the reality of Mongolian culture and how it was different in real life. And then um, I talked with a few expats and I then I expanded the podcast not just to talk with uh, expats. I, was, I created some episodes on just uh, common topics that people don't know about Mongolia. So there are, I talk about more uh, both the nice and um, colorful and uh, romantic side of Mongolia and also the difficult problems and uh, complex issues and what are not good in Mongolia, problems, etc. So I try to paint the both black and um, both sides of the picture. So I just try to be candid and real about Mongolia. So that's why, uh, so that the people can have... Uh, information about Mongolia that is balanced and realistic. And uh, you have mentioned that you are going back to do your doctorate thesis. Uh, have you already thought about uh, on which topic the doctorate will be? Yes, um, I will uh, kind of continue my master's thesis on Mongolian identity, but on the um, second generation Mongolian diaspora who are not actually born in Mongolia, but they have, they are uh, living outside of Mongolia, but they have this identity conflicts as uh, for immigrations, immigrants. So I think I'm interested in that area and I will be researching more on and interviewing with the second generation Mongolians who are born outside of Mongolia. And also some people might not know that there's a lot of, well, there's different ethnicities of uh, Mongolian people. There's the Khalka people, there's the Budats, there's the Dorwood mm -hmm. people, Bayat, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And uh, the Budat people actually live up north in what is now the Russian Federation. So, so Buratia mm -hmm. uh, got incorporated into the Russian Federation quite a while ago, and it, the Burats have remained there. And uh, do you have any connection with Buret people? Um, so majority of Mongolians are Khalkh Mongols. And um, I think maybe 95% of Mongolians are Khalkh. And um, so other ethnic uh, groups are living uh, locally. And Buryats, um, I don't think we, uh, Mongolians uh, feel quite, kind of separate or see Buryats as uh, culturally separate we see them as Mongolians and uh, also there are Kazakhs in the west western Mongolia but uh, Kazakhs are quite distinctive because they have their own language and religion but uh, we don't they're kind of like they're living in their own autonomous region but um, we are not very intervening with their uh, lives etc so there are no uh, very uh, severe conflicts or ethnic conflicts. So it's quite quite of peaceful uh, coexisting. And um, recently, of course, due to the uh, war affairs, a lot of Buryats are also uh, immigrating and also passing through Mongolia and they're trying to, um, they're looking for helps from Mongolian uh, brothers and people are helping them as they're also Mongolians and um, there, I would say the uh, ethnic conflict is not a big issue in Mongolia. Yeah, because from what I have heard, a lot of recruits uh, uh, that were sent uh, to the battlefronts were firstly taken from the ethnic minorities and also Buryats. Uh, a lot of Buryats have been taken as, well, they did not have a choice, basically. Mm -hmm. so, so they just had to go. To, to, to fight the war. Mm -hmm. And probably even now there's a lot of Buryats uh, in the front lines. And uh, do these things worry you? And do these things worry Mongolian people that uh, 
if there's a conflict happening in Western fronts, let's say there's there was a conflict in Georgia, uh, there's now conflict in Ukraine. Uh, do any people feel a little bit uncomfortable about the situation, thinking that it might start happening in the southeast parts of Russian Federation? Yes, we are, we are, and I am also worried. But um, um, for me, I don't have a close relationship with the Buryats who are immigrating or uh, fleeing from the war recruitment, but I also, I have a Buryat friend um, who studies here and her friends are fleeing and I talk, I also talked with her on my podcast about uh, her situation and also her friend's situation, um, trying to uh, leave uh, Russia and trying to also settle in for a while, etc. So those kind of situations are quite serious. That is true. Um, but I think people are quite uh, not very willing to openly express their opinion because of the um, uh, Russian monitor of like, uh, it's quite difficult to openly uh, fight back against this because Politically, it's uh, Mongolia is quite dependent, I think, even though it's not visible on the outside. But of course, definitely there are a lot of Russian connections and they're kind of uh, pulling the um, strings behind the uh, politics. So people are not very brave and not feeling safe to express their opinion against these kind of situations. Because already there were some kind of people were arrested and put into the jail because they can also fight back and uh, express their opinion. So even though we say we are a free country, democratic country, there are still influences from these big powers and it's also complicated. Okay, okay, I see. And what about the Kazakhs? Uh, uh, from Probably you have some shared history in the past. Uh, I don't know how far back. But uh, culturally, civilization-wise, uh, I feel like Kazakhs and the Mongols are not that far apart. Uh, am I correct on that? Did you have some uh, history together in the past? Uh, is there Are there similarities between the communities? Actually, uh, as uh, to compare these two countries, culture nomadic culture is very much similar like they also herd animals they also live in the gir uh, yurt and um, very, it looks very similar but in terms of language and religion um, last year i visited the western side of mongolia in kazakh region in bayangotli and it felt like totally different culture and different country because um, the language is different uh, and the religion is different. So uh, in general, the general history of nomadic history is similar, but the current um, cultural difference is, uh, that is uh, very true. That is true, real difference, <laughs> I would say. And how do Kazakh people and Mongolian people see each other? Like, uh, uh... Are the two countries, Kazakhstan, let's say, and Mongolia, friendly to each other? Like, uh, do Mongolians like the Kazakhs, Kazakh people? Do Kazakhs like the Mongolian people? Like, uh, you, I know you don't have like a physical border, mm -hmm. uh, demographically, uh, geopolitically, at least currently, uh, but but still, uh, I, I feel still feel like there is some connection uh, in terms of uh, even geography, previous culture. So in modern times, are there still some connection uh, between each other? Mm. Uh, we are quite friendly with each other. We are, um, I think uh, recently many Mongolians are traveling to Kazakhstan and um, because it's very close and affordable and quite friendly, we are quite friendly with each other. And um, looking back on the connection, um, I think in 19, uh, 1990s, uh, Kazakhstan actually implemented the um, 
reverse immigration policy that they were promoting Kazakhs to move back to Kazakhstan and they were kind of supporting um, creating a workplace and uh, those kind of um, supporting policies. But um, there was a research that uh, though um, almost half of the Kazakhs moved back to Kazakhstan from Mongolia, but after a few years they uh, immigrated back to Mongolia because they it was already quite separated from Kazakhstan, Kazakh culture, and uh, they were quite um, settled in the Mongolian uh, region and they wanted to just go back and live in the western side of Mongolia. So the reason was um, they couldn't reintegrate back to the Kazakhstan community and uh, I think the reintegration part was difficult. Okay, understand. And uh, well, from from my knowledge, and also I have uh, some friends from Kazakhstan. Uh, probably uh, from all the post-Soviet cultures, uh, Kazakhstan is most uh, Russified. So they have adopted the Russian culture, the Soviet mm. culture, even the modern-day Russian culture, the most. Mm-hmm. And even the Kazakh language is now on the brink of extinction mm-hmm. because most uh, Kazakh people in, living in Kazakhstan speak Russian and uh, many people speak Russian better than uh, Kazakh. So so that's also an issue for Kazakhstan in some ways. And they're trying to, I think they're trying to revive mm-hmm. the Kazakh language. Um, but, you know, a similar thing was in, in Latvia, like uh, our neighbors in the north because they had a quite a large diaspora of russian speakers Mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes if you go to the capital you will definitely hear more russian than latvian and now they're trying to also like uh, say like okay well maybe let's try to relearn latvian Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like what would happen if everyone in Lithuanians in Lithuania started speaking english just because all of us know english Mm -hmm. It, it, it would it would be a little bit odd uh, so, so preserving the the native language, the national language, is uh, extremely important. So, so maybe that's what, what was one of the parts, one of the reason why uh, the Kazakh people living in Mongolia had difficulties to reintegrate that's into Kazakhstan right, that's right. because it has changed significantly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Well, anyways, uh, I want to respect your time. Uh, we have already been talking for quite a while. Uh, so maybe just to round up, uh, I would like to ask about uh, your plans for the future. So I know that you're going to do your doctorate. Most probably you're going to continue the Modern Mongolia podcast. Uh, but besides these two, uh, do you have any other plans uh, for the future, something that you would really like to do? And uh, could, you, could you share it with us? Um, I actually don't have a specific idea beside uh, these two. So actually recently, um, uh, Mongolia announced the three years of visit visit Mongolia and uh, Minister of Culture is doing a lot of um, advertising and marketing. And just a couple of days ago, they invited the, the um, international influencer. If you heard about Nas Daily, they invited Nas to Mongolia to represent and advertise Mongolia to the world. But actually, I am one of the people that didn't like how that influencer uh, represented Mongolia. So I think I'm gonna um, take time to uh, develop and um, um, produce more episodes on modern Mongolia because um, I don't want like culture minister of culture to invite those kind of uh, influencers and represent Mongolia we as Mongolians actually have to um, take that responsibility to to represent our culture in uh, accurate and more um, in a true true way Uh, so I'm gonna put more effort on um, developing my podcast more but at the moment I'm kind of having in the liminal uh, space in terms of my home space because I'm packing and trying to move uh, and relocate so 
after a while I'm going to um, produce more consistent episodes and gonna uh, pursue my academic research and I don't know um, I can't say any more uh, plans that I, I would be doing before uh, besides these two focuses in my life so fantastic that's wonderful I will stay tuned uh, for uh, new episodes of modern Mongolia I'm, I'm looking forward to it I think it's a great way how to popularize and inform people about about the culture. So, so I hope all the best uh, for the project and that uh, the doctorate thesis is going to go well. And yeah, please keep keep me updated on how everything's going. And I I hope to speak with you sometime in the future as well. Yes, I will. And thank you very much for um, being interested in Mongolia and being interested in what I'm doing. I'm very grateful for that. And I also wish you all the best for your, uh, with your podcast and everything. And it was quite interesting and informative to talk to you. And it's very, it was very nice. And of course, let's, uh, I hope we cool. should, uh, I hope we will keep uh, contacting and update our, from our own projects and maybe have some, another collaboration in the future or I don't know, whatever. So, 